everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have a number of people here on the case of, uh, of real tragedy out of uh, Antioch. Um, a young man... Uh, was uh, killed in a way that was very similar to uh, George Floyd. Uh, Angelo Quinto, uh, his family had called out the, the police. The police arrived at the scene. They end up uh, holding him down on the ground uh, with his legs prone uh, for a period of six to eight minutes. And uh, naturally, uh, he ended up passing away during that time. And this past week in uh, Contra Costa County, the Contra Costa County coroner came up uh, holding an inquest and they determined that the cause of death was excited delirium, uh, which uh, for people like me who've been covering police issues for a long time is a gigantic red flag um, because everyone from the AMA to uh, various uh, professional medical uh, folks do not believe that that is a real diagnosis. So here to talk about uh, this issue uh, are uh, the family of uh, Angelo Quinto, Cassandra and Bella. Uh, we also have attorney Ben uh, Nisbaum uh, we may have John Burris uh, come, uh, although he's on vacation, but we're trying to get him on. And we also have investigator Robert Collins. Uh, so welcome everyone. And I guess um, we can talk real briefly um, with, with the family here uh, who was actually at the scene when this horrible thing happened. Uh, so uh, maybe you guys can uh, kind of describe briefly uh, what happened Sure, and just a little bit um, of a clarification. Robert Collins is my dad. Oh, so I'm sorry. No worries. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what happened on that night was um, at around or after 11 p.m., my brother was experiencing extreme paranoia. Um, and this was what we called an episode um, where he just was completely acting out of character and very afraid um, paranoid, uh, seemed to be having hallucinations, and um, we were not patient with him on this night, and that really exacerbated his fears, and 
led him to, to want to hold on to us and keep us all together so that, you know, none of us would die or, or nothing would happen to us. Um, that was his, that was a great fear of his, but that really then made us anxious. Um, and I later called the police. Um, and when they arrived, my mom had him in a bear hug on the floor in um, her bedroom. And he had calmed down a lot because, you know, a, a hug, it, it was exactly what my brother needed. Um, just the comfort from my mom that everything was going to be okay. And I'm right there, not leaving him. And that, you know, that my mom was not leaving him. Uh, and I had made the 911 call while I was in a different room, uh, but that's not uh, really relevant right now. Um, and when the police arrived, they expressed their confusion about who the call was for because it looked like my mom was in control. And so they asked about, you know, uh, who, who was restraining who. And then afterward, they took him from my mom's arms, put him on the ground, uh, with an officer handcuffing him, or he, they put him on his stomach. Um, he he shouted, please don't kill me, please don't kill me. Uh, and um, they yeah, handcuffed him uh, and kneeled on his neck to like upper back area of his neck and um, held his legs crossed against his back and or his butt. Yeah, uh, they, yeah. yeah, they pushed the them against his back and this all happened in front of my mom specifically while I was just walking back and forth in the hallway uh, to living room area and um, she was just 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 there first and and this I did not leave the room I was yeah. there the whole time yeah um, and, and um, she she had asked when he had, you know, become unresponsive at the beginning of, of the time we think that he probably became unresponsive if he was asleep and the officers did not um, acknowledge, acknowledge it. it really or, or make any attempt to check on him. Um, and also at one point, an officer got tired and switched places. So a different officer was kneeling on his neck. And same position, in the even, same position. Even after I said, is he asleep? You know. And so my mom said, asked that question a couple times. And, um, you know, you, you could hear that for the last four and a half minutes at least. Um, my brother was completely unresponsive. Oh, and I also had heard something at you know the beginning of that I guess I heard something like this is what we do to calm them down um and then anyway back to the him being unresponsive um again my mom you know asked if he was asleep and there was really not much conversation going on between the officers and my brother um, or actually no, no conversation between the officers and my brother. It was only between each other laughing together or talking to my mom. And um, they, the, the only questions they asked to him had no substance. It was, are you going to be good now, Angelo, or something like that. And um, it was really not an attempt to, to check on his well-being at all, especially after holding him in this restraint for so, so many minutes. 
And so when they finally turned him over, there was blood, a puddle of blood that was coming from his mouth or his face. Um, His eyes had rolled up in his head. And my mom says that he looked dead. Um, He did, actually. He looked dead, you know. Who who rolled him over? The police or the paramedics? The police, the police. Yeah, the police rolled because him over. the reason why they rolled him over is because the paramedics were here, so they were, you know, they rolled him over so they could, I don't know. Um, yeah, and they like pressed on him, but nothing. Obviously, he was completely. Just what gone. was the demeanor of the police like? Were they angry, or uh, did they seem like they were in control? The the the. What made us so confused about the entire situation was just that they didn't seem like they didn't seem like they were very malicious or anything. They seemed like well, we perceived them at least as though they they had control of of what they were doing in in this situation. They were just doing what they were trained to do, as they said. I trusted them. I thought they knew what they were doing. So you know, I was just watching. Well, that's, that's why also mom only asked if he was asleep, just to get their attention on him. Yeah. Um, But uh, yeah, it it wasn't, you know, very calm. There was no beating. No, even even when even they even when they took Angelo and put him on his stomach and handcuffed him and, you know, pulled his leg up uh, against his uh, uh, body. Angelo was not even doing anything. Um, I, you know, he was very compliant. Uh, the, it, it's just, you know, I, I didn't understand. I didn't understand why they had to use that kind of restraint or force. They didn't have to. Yeah, because it, it, it he was not. He, he was very compliant. It was it was a, it was, was such a violent. Person. He was not violent. No, no, um, no weapons. No mm-hmm. nothing. You know, it's like, it's it's. And they had also responded to his cries of "Please don't kill me" with "We're not going to kill you" or yes, something like exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. Um. So yes, we we were we were um, I guess we had these ideas about police brutality that just sort of aligned with malicious facial expressions and and taking out your guns and always are going for your weapons and all of that but I didn't realize that your body could could be such a powerful weapon even when you seemed calm um I'm talking about when the officers seemed calm so because like I said while they were restraining him they they were laughing together too it was all very lighthearted. they were saying to my mom oh mom's strong because you know my mom is 411 my brother's not a big guy my, my brother was as big as me um an inch taller uh and they they were just having I, I don't know it was just that's why it was so difficult for us to um to understand the the depth of the situation I know that even when they took him out on the gurney doing CPR I texted my dad he looks blue or looks blue Um, But even then, I just couldn't really conceive that that anything could be wrong. Um, 
it was all very confusing. Mm -hmm. um, it was, so, yeah, yeah it, it was. I mean, the whole well, let's, uh, let, let's bring Ben into this uh, discussion. I mean, as an attorney, what are you seeing here? Man, I mean, I've done a lot of cases that involve asphyxia, asphyxiation during restraint. And uh, this fits the pattern almost to a T. Uh, everything about it kind of screams out asphyxiation. And, uh, you know, when you hear, you know, people hear the term police brutality and they assume that, you know, that must mean a beating took place. What we're talking about is unreasonable force. And the, uh, you know, the case laws has been clearly established since 2003 that restraining a person in a way that asphyxiates them is unreasonable force unless there's a reason, unless, you're, unless you can use lethal force. But in a case where you have someone restrained in that way, it's hard to conceive of how you could be allowed to use lethal force. So what's happened is uh, the defense side, seemingly apparently, I say funded by Taser, although their experts deny that, but it seems to be that Taser is kind of behind this, is, is a real push uh, beginning in the very late 90s uh, to establish something called, that they call excited delirium. And now I had deposed the, uh, the coroner down in Florida, Dade County, Miami-Dade County coroner, Charles Wetley, years ago on a case, who uh, is the uh, rediscoverer of excited delirium. It was lost to the sands of time, apparently, until the, until the late 90s. And, uh, you know, he uh, claims to have uh, rediscovered it. It used to be called something called Bell's Mania. In any event, but when it was rediscovered, it was rediscovered as a different species. And apparently, the only documented forms of excited delirium that cause fatality are those that occur when police are restraining a person. And I asked him about that and in deposition. And he says to me, well, there are, there are definitely people who die for who, who die from excited delirium when the police aren't restraining them. But usually that's, you know, they'll like jump off a building or jump off a bridge. And I'm like, well, isn't the jump what kills you, not the uh, delirium? And of course, you know, that's true. So uh, what, what happens is you have a theory that is totally unprovable. There's no independent way of, uh, of demonstrating that, that it exists. It doesn't leave any markers. It is just purely conjecture. It's junk science, in other words. Uh, the only kind of significance that, you know, when you have a case where a person uh, dies while being restrained, uh, there are times when that person has a very high uh, body temperature and they've exhibited all these symptoms of excited delirium. Not simple paranoia or minor hallucinations, but we're talking people who are almost catatonically unresponsive, people who might be, there's a, a training video that Taser has with an example of a person in Florida, I believe, who uh, is sitting there in a stupor, pouring sweat, dripping sweat, and uh, you know, mumbling some nonsense that you can't even really hear. And apparently they say that's an example of excited delirium. That's a person who wouldn't recognize his family members. That's a person who wouldn't recognize that anybody was restraining him. 
you wouldn't be saying you speak in English, much less using uh, the words, please don't kill me in response to the police. Uh, and one of the things that we've learned is that Angelo was very fearful of police. And so, and he was also very fearful of dying. And so when the police came, and we're, we do think that there is a mental health component to the case, that he had a mental impairment. That was a consequence though of when he was beaten and uh, so, uh, may have suffered a brain injury. You know, that's not something, you know, but in any event, uh, that's when he started to manifest uh, the, these episodes. And he, basically there would be uh, episodes of fearfulness, being scared of being left alone, almost more like a PTSD type thing rather than an excited delirium thing. And so anyway. Well, and, and I wanna bring this in because, um, you know, in June, um, you know, shortly after the defense in the George Floyd case tried to raise the idea of excited delirium, uh, the AMA came out uh, in opposition to the notion of excited delirium as a medical diagnosis and warned against using it. Uh, and, and they said, current evidence does not support excited delirium as an official diagnosis. And the organization opposes its use until a clear set of diagnostic criteria has been established. So they're not completely discounting that, uh, this idea, but they're saying it's basically an unproven idea that's been put forth. And they, they didn't say this, but been put forth by Taser International. It uh, seems pretty clear in the literature. Look, look, I can tell you, I had an episode of excited delirium in the courtroom. When the coroner started to claim that this was excited delirium, I suffered excited delirium, you know? <laughs> now, can it kill you? No, no, I mean, come on. Look, if the only people who are dying are dying with these officers literally on top of them, where they're in a prone restraint position that we know is dangerous, that we know can affect your, your breathing, and we know weight on the back, weight where you compress the rib cage, that's a, and we know that that can kill you. So why do you have to, you know, when you, somebody throws up some nonsense that as the AMA said, there's no linkage. There, there's no causal connection between uh, excited delirium and death. So, and it's ludicrous. It seems like a 200 pound police officer with his knee on the guy's neck, holding him in a prone position where, uh, you know, the uh, air passages are gonna be obstructed. Uh, seems like a much simpler cause of death than, uh, than jumping through all these hoops. Uh, you might call that up an example of Occam's razor. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what does your um, medical examiner say? Well, what's, what I found interesting, number one, is the, uh, the county pathologist or the, you know, the person, uh, the independent contractor for them, uh, said there were no particular hemorrhages. Now that's not true. Our, uh, our pathologist found significant petechial hemorrhages distributed throughout the eyes. So that raises a lot of, of suspicions. Uh, secondly, 
I mean, you could hear him say it. Even when he uh, gave the diagnosis of excited delirium, he gave it with the, a uh, caution. He basically said, what I'm about to tell you is a bunch of BS. I mean, he said, it's, this is a very controversial diagnosis that really needs a lot further study. And then he said, this is the cause of death. And the reason, and ultimately what happened was they, they, uh, they saw that there was modafinil in his blood. So a lot of excited delirium, so-called excited delirium cases are linked to methamphetamine use. And certainly, you know, people can, I think they call it tweaking or being spun. You know, they can be uh, in a bad state mentally after doing drugs like methamphetamine or other stimulants. Uh, that, that was not a cause of anything. Modafinil didn't do anything to Angelo, certainly not anything more than, than the cup of coffee that he had drunk. Now, I, I'm waiting to hear that there's gonna be a synergistic effect between coffee and modafinil that put him in a state of excited delirium. And that's never been proven to do that to anybody else. So um, what I was asking though was, uh, what is your medical examiner saying about cause of death? Oh, asphyxiation, plainly, straightforward. You know, the other thing, almost all of these excited delirium death cases, the person has an enlarged heart. Where they, they want to call it excited delirium, and that that can predispose you, because what happens, you know, you if you're in, you know, a, a worse state already because you've taken a bunch of meth and you have an enlarged heart, and then you reduce the oxygen, well, you're probably more likely to have uh, deleterious consequences. Uh, but Angelo didn't. His heart was just fine. His health was just fine, you know, until this happened. Till these cops killed them. So why do these forensic pathologists throw this stuff out there? Um, it is my belief that they work for the county. Some work directly for the county, for the coroners. Some work for a bunch of different counties, but they're working for the government. These and you know, the, the police are government actors and it is a very codependent relationship. You look at, for the same reason that district attorneys almost never prosecute cops. It is a codependent relationship. And so they're used as a form of cover. But then you get, you have some people who are more independent. I know doctor, I know there's a, a few doctors. I believe Dr. Ben Amalu, at one point I had a case where he was, a retained uh, county pathologist by San Joaquin County, if I recall correctly, where he diagnosed that it was a uh, asphyxiation death case. And I'm not sure if uh, they've used them since then, but I think that you might lose the contract if you do. So the other interesting aspect of this was that um, Contra Costa County, like a lot of other counties in Northern California, uh, contracts with uh, California Forensic Medical Group. Um, it turns out, and we actually covered this 10 years ago when, when it came out, but Forensic Medical Group uh, was, was nailed in an investigative report by ProPublica where they had hired this guy, Dr. Gill, 
and Dr. Gill wasn't properly licensed. And Dr. Gill uh, had basically gone from the East Coast to the West Coast. And every stop he made, he, had, he left a trail of uh, wrongful uh, death findings, basically. Um, and he ends up out in California and they finally uh, caught up to him in Son Sonoma County. Uh, where he made some massive mistakes. Um, and all that happened as the result of this was that forensic medical groups severed their ties with Dr. Gill, uh, but forensic medical group kept their contracts with all of these counties. Um, and, and what we learned, what ProPublica learned uh, from this is that there wasn't um, you know, an effective oversight system over how these people are licensed and whether they're licensed and uh, who these people are. Um, and, and so it was a big uh, kerfuffle, but it doesn't look like much has changed. If I recall, I think CFMG, uh, as we call them, they, they, when they terminated Dr. Gill's contract, they didn't say it was performance-based. They just said they didn't have enough bodies uh, that needed to be autopsied anymore. I mean, yeah. <laughs> look, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's the way of the world. You know, people do something wrong and they don't want to admit it. They don't want to acknowledge it, especially when it's coming from the government side. You know, they're the side that has the power and they believe that they can dictate, uh, they can change the reality of what happened. It, and it's, it's really, frankly, very disturbing. That's why we have body cameras now. That's why Antioch should have had body cameras because everybody knows that that's been the case. I think, uh, you know, I was watching uh, The People versus uh, O.J. Simpson and they had uh, the deep dive on Mark Furman. And he, if you recall, he was talking about how basically they could write up the report about how things happen. They could frame the narrative and decide the facts. Well, that was way back in the early 90s. We know it happened long before then, and it's continued since then. It's just another example of, of the powerful using the power they have to try to alter the reality of what happened. So I guess, you know, the question I think a lot of people will have is, okay, so the coroner comes up with this finding. What does that mean for, for your job, uh, you know, representing this family? in this wrongful death case. Well, so the other thing about that is, you know, maybe the coroner thinks that that's helpful to uh, in defending the officers or in defending the, the police. Uh, in my view, it is terrible. I mean, that tells me how bad their case really is. It tells me they really have no defense because if you're relying on excited delirium in a case where a person has a normal body temperature, and I have the paramedic records, I have the uh, medical records, the seizure medication, all that. Uh, you know, the, the medical finding was that he suffered anoxic encephalopathy, and that's brain damage caused by a lack of oxygen. So, and then, and that's bolstered by the fact that he had seizures while in the hospital that are a consequence of anoxic encephalopathy. Uh, so everything lines up with oxygen, the brain being deprived of oxygen. And so if they're, you know, if they had a real defense, we would, I would have expected to have heard it. 
now we know they have no defense. So that's what I think of it. Um, I, I mean, I, I guess I'm troubled on multiple levels in, in this case, which is one of the reasons I wanted you guys on, because, you know, first of all, uh, this incident happened after George Floyd. Um, and, and I know, you know, just in my work, uh, we, we've run into a number of these cases where it's a uh, cop putting knee on neck, knee on back, uh, ends up in asphyxiation. So the police are not learning anything from this. It's hard to, for me, it's hard to generalize over one specific incident to another specific incident. I think it takes time because you have people who have been officers for years and they have a way of doing things and they bought in and they've been trained to buy into this excited delirium nonsense. So they, they believe in their own mind. And this is what, one reason why it's so harmful that, that Taser has uh, pushed this and that police agencies have, have pushed excited delirium because it minimizes the importance to their own officers of all the training they received around avoiding asphyxiation during restraint. So it makes them, you know, I hear officers say all the time, well, he was talking, that meant he could breathe. So I have one officer, I had one officer, quick story, I just have to tell this. I said, really, you understand that the, uh, that in order, that in order to uh, respirate, you have to both inhale and exhale, right? And, uh, and you understand that to vocalize, that only requires exhaling. You cannot talk while you're inhaling. You know that, right? Oh, yes, you can. Really? Try it. So the dude tries that this is in a deposition under oath. And he's like, finally, uh, I uh, can't because <laughs> he can't. And so I mean, it's just nonsense. It's like what you're doing, though, when you're talking and saying, I can't breathe, you're using up your your precious reserves of oxygen to try to tell the officer. And then the police don't take it seriously because they buy into all this BS and it is lethal. It is killing people. So Taser is killing people by pushing excited delirium. Police agencies are killing people by pushing excited delirium. And anyone who is trying to minimize the importance of, of positional asphyxiation and, and pushing ideas like if you can talk, you can breathe, they're killing people too. Well, and and not only that, and and you raise a good point on, on the to get plugged into the power that, source. But you know, one of the other interesting things is just because you have enough oxygen to say a few words doesn't mean you have enough oxygen getting your brain exactly to sustain your life you know you can be you don't have to be completely cut off from oxygen to die um which seems to be their thinking is oh you know as long as he gets a little bit of air he'll he'll be okay but that's not really how it works um and and it just but exactly. that gets me to the other point um, that I saw here in their description, you know, the mother saying, hey, uh, is he asleep? At no point did they seem to be very concerned to make sure that he was okay. And that was kind of, you know, what we saw in the George Floyd case uh, and what we've seen in a bunch of other cases that I've covered over the years is, you know, whether or not they want to harm these people they're not making sure they're okay like 
you know, if you're like checking on them every every little bit to make sure they're conscious, they're getting enough air, you know, that's one thing. But if you're holding them down and you're you're not checking the life signs, then that's a problem. We have video of the officers walking into the house and you can see the look on and the body language on Officer Perkinson as he walks into the house. Uh, that's not someone that I want responding to my child who needs help. That's not somebody, somebody with that look, who's got that look on their face, like this is a nuisance to them that, that you know, they shouldn't be bothered with. That's not someone I want responding to my child who's in need of help at all. So, I mean, uh, and then the final angle we've kind of covered uh, a lot, which is, you know, the medical diagnosis and whatever's going on with the coroner's office here. So that's a lot of different pieces uh, to this puzzle. Uh, you know, as somebody who, who is in this field, which one of these are you most concerned about at this point? Well, I don't know that I'm concerned about any of them, except insofar as there's so much BS. You know, it's just layers of BS. What can, in terms of our case, you know, like I said, what I learned is that there, there is no good defense here. That's what I learned. So I'm not concerned about any of that. Uh, you know, what I am concerned about is more so, you know, about the next case about the next person that, you know, it won't be with Officer Perkinson because he's retired now, but the next officer, the next person that officers from this agency deal with and they restrain, you know, that's who I'm concerned about because if you don't take this stuff seriously, if you don't consider that, that your actions in, in, in restraining a person could be lethal if you don't do it right, then uh, more people are gonna die. Now, you know, years and years ago, before I went to law school, I was a counselor uh, working at, at a group homes for, emotionally, for severely emotionally disturbed youth. And I had to be trained in restraint. And this is probably, this is after I graduated college, probably 1997, 98, 99. And I had to restrain kids. And sometimes I would hear that. If you can talk, you can breathe from other counselors. And I was like, that's obviously not true but there was no training that said it wasn't true. So I know it, it really is, an, it's a difficult thing that needs to be understood and addressed. Uh, even then, it was clear to me, of course there were kids, that uh, you could certainly hurt somebody badly and possibly kill them if you restrain them the wrong way. And I feel like police don't have that understanding. And I had that understanding, you know, way back then. So, and it's about time. And I guess one of the other things I'm really concerned about is there doesn't seem to even now be a system of accountability for, for when things go wrong. Uh, even in a county like Contra Costa, I mean, we'll see what, what the DA does, but you know, the DA in Contra Costa County is relatively uh, more progressive than in a lot of other counties, and yet you're still seeing these problems happen in Contra Costa County. I ought to tell you the, a story off the record after we finish, and I will, if you're interested. But uh, 
but no, I mean, uh, I'm not sure how much influence the DA had over these proceedings. My uh, hope is that the DA would look at it, would say, are you kidding me? Now we need to really open a case. Hearing that excited delirium diagnosis, knowing that he was fully healthy, his heart was, that Angelo's heart was fine. I mean, if you need anything thing more to really pursue a criminal case against these officers, well, I got it for you and it'll be released soon enough when we release our own pathologist report. And then to the family, I mean, what have you guys learned from all of this other than the horrible tragedy, which, uh, you know, is, is gotta be unimaginable. Um, I can speak on that a little bit. I know that we have been, you know, we've, we've lived in Berkeley for how old am I? <laughs> for, I guess, 16 and a half years or something before um, we got here. And I still live in Berkeley with my dad sometimes. Um, and growing up there, you, you, well, for me, <laughs> growing up there, I was exposed to a lot of advocacy and just encouragement to stand up for what you believe in and, and really question the systems around us. But having firsthand experience within this, um, with, with these lies, with omissions, with sort of smear campaigns, is that what they call it? It's really, it's really disappointing to see it front and center. Um, and especially for it to be somebody in your family or your family, or even me, <laughs> even me, um, at the, the, uh, coroner's inquest, um, which we had been you know, mentally preparing for, for these last eight months, because like I said, Ben did tell us, or I said this earlier, but Ben um, and John, they both told us to, to not get our hopes up and to, to um, understand that this is the way that things worked out a lot in the past. And that's the way it might work out in this case. But even so, it, it was really disappointing. It was also really interesting just to see the, the amount of, of bias Although the the hearing coordinator, um, I'm sorry, I don't remember who he was or um, what his official yes. title was, but he spoke about impartiality. Sure. Of course, that's in the rules, so you have to read those to the jury and everything. But um, you could see, you know, he didn't name two key firsthand witnesses, especially the mother of my brother, who was in the room the entire time. Um, and they didn't refer to us by name at all a single time in the entire four hour or so period uh, that they held the inquest. And, and there were, I, I could take hours describing all the lies and the omissions and the, the, the expressions of, of uh, biases and um, it, would, it would overwhelm you, it overwhelms me. Um, but ultimately it's just, it's just very telling um, and I'm still really happy that we have a, a strong set of, of supporters and community members who are just as um, motivated as us to make some change so that this stops happening um, to more people, or at least so that we can keep inching forward to gain some semblance of accountability. Um, because, you know, there's not even the admission of what actually happened that night. They don't admit to that at all. 
um, because that's the usual, right? I mean, we, we have been very privileged in a lot of ways. And one of those ways is that my mom and I were there. My mom was in the room and not a lot of family members, not a lot of people generally witness these things firsthand. Um, and it can be really uh, difficult to hear how, how much uh, people just try to push the, the false falsehoods, is that a word? The lies, um, but it's also really, really um, uh, encouraging to know that we do have the truth on our side. But I know that also what, you're asking what we what, learned. What, what happened that <laughs> but, night, Yeah, what I saw and what I, you know, everything that happened that, that night. I will never forget. That is something that I can't, even if I want to forget about it, I don't think I will. It's here, you know, that, that I, it's, it, it's, I and have to learn how to live with that every day and mom mom always says that she doesn't think we don't think that the officers can forget what happened that night i don't either. think so i mean it's just a lot easier to to fight for your life when you have a life to live and mm -hmm. the person that you've done something to is not alive anymore yeah. i i mean i will i i'm sure they know what happened that night you know. And I'd also like to take this opportunity to briefly just reiterate what Ben has said countless times and in, in that the, the only symptom of excited delirium, if we're speaking about it uh, legitimately, is that he was restrained by officers. That's the only symptom my brother exhibited. So. Yeah. Um, Robert, what's your take on all of this? You know, when you, when you step away just a tiny a bit, I think what's odd is it's so politicized and that there's, there's a tale of two Americas. And there are the people that are kind of on the, on behalf of the powerful and they may be the powerful and they feel powerful in society. And there are the people that aren't and are on the other side and are assumed, um, you know, the really troubling assumption I get is that so many people will sort of assume that if somebody runs into a difficulty with law enforcement, it is their fault automatically. But the treatment was so different is what I, I can say. Just really, so it's really kind of shocking, frankly, as somebody that always sort of expected, you know, rights to be provided to somebody. I know the system has many problems, but, but it's really, really shocking to be in the middle of what you know is a lie and just seeing the system actually cover up and having to, I think I was privileged before because I didn't have to watch it. I knew it would happen, but I didn't have to follow every single painful step. You know, I could sort of check back in and go, oh, yeah, that case, of course, it went this way or they covered it up that way. And, and sort of read the summary, which is a lot easier. It's, it's a, a bit more difficult to go through it when you're seeing it step by step by painful step. Having said all that, um, you know, we have been, I think, fortunate that it's at a time where there's at least sort of room for change. And we've had a lot of community support and we've been able to pass or, or help pass a lot of reforms in Antioch with body camps and non-police uh, mental health response teams. And now the banning of the knee to neck and other positional asphyxia causing um, restraints uh, in, that's up for uh, the council meeting tomorrow night. Um, so this have been uh, things that make it, and, and on the state level with AB 490, banning the positional asphyxia holds uh, throughout California. So we've, I think 
are hopefully working towards a world where less, you know, where families don't have to go through the same thing we've had to go through. But it's very strange when you think of yourself as an American and you think you should be under a system that uh, follows the rule of law. And yet what you find is that certain people are above the law. And, uh, you know, I thought the whole idea behind the origins was we don't have kings here. Well, we, we do have kings. We have separate laws for different people. And I don't think that should be the case. So uh, not only are there separate laws, but we have things like the inquest, which is one of the most biased processes I have ever seen. When we were going in, they let all the police go in, they closed the doors and left us all out. And they met with the hearing examiner, whatever it's called, certainly not a judge, I would hope. And this is the most biased process I've ever seen in my life. They said they would ask questions and let the attorneys ask questions. They never did that. They didn't do anything they were supposed to. The, the guy was basically leading the witness. What would be normally an objection in court with leading the witness, you had a police officer who would forget to say something he had in his list. And he'd be like, oh, you forgot this, you forgot that, you, you know. Um, so it was the complete opposite of an impartial process. And so why have a hearing if you only get to hear from one side? This is equivalent of, you know, it's a, it actually flies in, in the face of what American jurisprudence is supposed to be about. So, you know, it's very, it's very strange to be in the middle of it. Yeah, please. That's why we'll be in federal court. That's why we are in federal court. It's not a perfect place, but it is far better than a, the county and certainly Contra Costa County. And also, if I can add something to just what my dad had said previously about just us being privileged, we we have been privileged, and I said this before as well, we continue to be very privileged in this struggle. We have a lot of support. Um, we're coming out really strong, and we definitely still have our, our confidence and our we, we have our, our mental strength to guide us through because we do have, have our um, you know, know have the truth. the truth. We know the truth. We know the truth. Um, and I just also wanted to include that my mom kind of was exploring the fact that her worldview has shifted. So you asked what we were learning about. And um, my mom had, had, has kind of been struggling with sort of the grief of a loss of a worldview in that, you know, we were privileged enough to, to believe that if you don't, if you just comply with, with law enforcement, when, you know, you encounter them at any point um, and you just you just be as passive as possible, go with whatever they say, just as my brother used to tell us to do, that you would be safe. Um, that turned out not to be the case here. And we're also learning that, you know, some people's world worldview is that, uh, you know, that isn't the case. So you do have to fight back if you think that you're going to lose your lives. And that is also why some people resist a, arrest or just any encounters with the police and so that's just been a tough thing also for my mom that she had talked to me about before um which is just to having a new worldview and having to to accept this new reality wherein not everything is so black and white that you can you can be in in such a, a confusing situation and not make it out of that even if you do everything right um Yes, and then, yeah, that's... Well, at least we know, you know, the good... One of the good things that came out of this inquest is now we know their story and they are under oath. Mm -hmm. That's, that's So they one. have to stick with this one. Yes. Unlike the previous couple. Um, yeah, yeah. They had so many stories, but they weren't under oath. They were, they were just, you know, throwing it out there. 
We'll see what they stick with. Yeah. We'll see. So, Ben, any closing thoughts? Um, sorry. Uh, look, our case is unaffected by this finding. It was anticipated. Uh, you know, it has no effect upon our case whatsoever. And, uh, you know, what I do think, like I said, it revealed the true weakness of their case. All right. I want to thank everyone for coming on. Uh, this was a horrible tragedy. Um, it was a horrible tragedy that took the life of a young man, young man who was loved by his family, um, and it shouldn't have happened. Um, I think that's very clear, uh, very avoidable uh, based on the facts that uh, have come out. Um, and, and then it's compounded uh, compounded by officials using medical terminology that has no medical basis. And uh, the AMA has come out and, and said as much. Um, this isn't something new. Uh, this has been going on for a long time. And I think that makes it even more tragic. Uh, this has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.